My name is Ellen Forsyth. My age, 33. I stand six feet, one inch and a half in my stockinged feet. I am sound in mind and limb. I have splendid digestion, have not a grain of superstition in my nature. I'm a doctor by profession and a bachelor because I see too much of the so-called joys of domestic life. Domestic life indeed. My experience of that gleaned from observations made while attending houses professionally is that it is a snare and a delusion. But it is not my purpose to speak on that subject. My task is to write out faithfully the extraordinary events that befell me while I occupied the house number 19 Great Hanover Street. Events that caused my hair to turn gray with horror in one single night. Events that have seared themselves on my brain. Events which can never be effaced from my memory while this life lasts. I say that I am strong and healthy because my narrative will sound like the delusions of some overwrought brain, and yet I have always had the reputation of being a clear-headed, eminently practical man. I am not superstitious, but stay, I ought to say, I was not, for I have been taught that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. In writing this history of facts, I can offer no explanation of their extraordinary character. I shall give you the whole story of what occurred to me, and if you like to disbelieve it, go yourself and spend a month or two in that accursed house, and you will be convinced. But let the time of your tendency be in December, and if you live through the horror of what you will hear and what you will see, you will be fortunate, but assuredly never, never will you laugh or jeer at the incomprehensible again. If, however, you take my advice, you will shun Great Hanover Street, or at least number 19. In 1884, I wished to commence practice for myself. I had been assistant to a doctor, and I dare say should have kept with him, but an old aunt of mine died and left me some money, so I thought that I could not do better than utilize it by making a start on my own behalf. I advertised, and in due time I bought a practice, my predecessor selling it because of the ill health of his wife, which compelled them to live in Cheltenham. Unfortunately, I could not take their house, as they had had it on a lease, which was just up, and the landlord himself intended on residing in it in the future. Now, I had always had a house of my own, and when my poor mother died, I had kept on the home, and Anne, my housekeeper, who had originally been my nurse, and so consequently petted and tyrannized over me in the manner of old servants, kept it in a way which was alike the delight and envy of all my bachelor friends. Of course, moving was a nuisance, but Slominster was only about 70 miles from London, where I was then living, and I knew that if I could get a suitable house, Anne would speedily get it into comfortable order. Don't worry yourself, said Mrs. Price, the wife of the doctor whose practice I'd bought. You will soon get a house. Until then, make this your home, if you don't mind us being in a state of confusion with packing. I thanked her, but I still resolved to get a house as soon as possible. I put myself in the hands of an agent, and for two days spent the best part of my time inspecting residences all more or less unsuitable. At length, I got thoroughly wearied. I walked along mechanically, and somehow, I found myself in a street that I had never been in before. It was an old-fashioned looking road, with quaint red brick houses on either side. 
I looked up to see the name of the place. There it was at the corner, Great Hanover Street. As my eye rested on the name, it also rested on a house. It was empty, and in the window was a card, to let. I crossed over. It was a corner house, well onto the pavement, but round the corner was a large square garden, and through the high iron railings mounted on a brick wall, I could see a side door. The very house for me, I thought triumphantly. A quiet, respectable neighborhood. The door at the side would do excellently for the surgery. There's a nice garden. I think I will look over it. The two-let card informed me that the keys and full particulars were to be obtained at Mr. Hunt's, Howard Row. So I took out my pocketbook and jotted down the address, and then looked at the number of the house. It was 19 Great Hanover Street. As I strode along, I saw a hansom and hailed it, and soon was bowling off to Howard Row. Mr. Hunt, I found from the brass plate on the door, was a land agent, and this was his office. On entering, I saw that there were some half-dozen young fellows, all busily engaged in writing. One of them got off his stool at my entrance. I have come for some particulars concerning a house, I said. Yes, sir, he answered, courteously but indifferently. The office was very quiet. The pens of the five clerks went scratching over the paper, and I was conscious of a vague and insane desire that they would lift up their heads and not be so industrious. What house is it? 19 Great Hanover Street, I answered. There was a dead pause. My wish was gratified. The clerks had led off writing, and with one common accord had turned round to stare at me. 19 Great Hanover Street, I repeated impatiently. The young fellow gazed at me, all indifference gone. He seemed amazed. I think, he commenced in a quick, eager voice, strangely at variance with his former languid tone, when he was interrupted by the entrance of a small, brisk-looking gentleman, who I rightly imagined was Mr. Hunt. What can we do for you, sir? he asked. I want some information about the house 19 Great Hanover Street, I replied. Was it my fancy, or did the ruddy color fade from his cheek? Anyhow, he stared at me with the same blank look that I had noticed with the clerk. Certainly, he responded, recovering himself with an effort. I take it that you are a stranger to town? Yes, I answered. I am Dr. Forsyth. I bought Dr. Price's practice. Ah, yes, he said, eyeing me curiously. So you would like particulars about number 19? It has been empty a long time. I might say a very long time. But the owners will be glad to do it up thoroughly for a good tenant. And then he gave me particulars as to accommodation and rent. The finish of it was that Hunt and I drove to see the house. But I was conscious that our departure in the hansom was watched with much interest by the clerk. I was delighted with the house. The rooms were large and airy, the domestic arrangements splendid. On either side of the passage leading to the garden door was a good-sized room, which would do capitally for surgery and a consulting room. In short, it was a small mansion, and the only thing that surprised me was the ridiculously low rent, which Mr. Hunt informed me was owing to the house being empty for so long. Another thing that astonished me was the man's nervousness for he was certainly the most nervous beggar I had ever met. Once I let my stick fall on the tessellated hall, and when he heard the clatter, he turned simply livid. To cut the matter short, I took the house for three years, on the understanding that it was to be repapered 
whitewashed and painted inside and out. I was staying at the Price's, but they were both in Cheltenham, making final arrangements for their removal there, and I heard nothing about my house till nearly a fortnight after I'd taken it. The work was being pushed on rapidly, but I had been so extremely busy professionally that I had only been down to number 19 twice, and I had been much tickled to see what an object of interest I was to all the neighbors, who eyed me from their windows with great curiosity. The prices returned in the evening, and at dinner I said to Mrs. Price, I've got a house, and I hope to be able to move in next week. I'm awfully glad to hear that you are suited at last, she replied cordially. Where is it? There was a pause and a smash. A glass that she held in her hand fell to the ground. Oh, doctor, not that red brick corner house, she said. Not the one with the corner garden. Yes, that's the one, I laughed rather impatiently. What is the matter with it? Is it haunted? Yes, she answered. Don't take it. I can't tell you how or why it is haunted, but it is. Two people only have lived in it during the last ten years, and one was found dead on the morning of December 22nd, and the other, four years ago on the same date, was found raving mad and died a fortnight after without recovering his reason once to say what he had heard or seen in that fearful house. I burst out laughing, and my merriment only seemed when I saw how thoroughly offended my hostess looked. I beg your pardon, I said contritely, but I really cannot help feeling amused. Imagine anyone in this prosaic, materialistic age believing in ghosts. It is too funny. Why, I shall perfectly revel in number 19. I have been pining all my life to live in a haunted house, to see a white-robed female carrying her head under her arm and so on. Mrs. Price looked offended. Her husband changed the conversation, and the subject dropped. But directly after she left the room, he said to me quite gravely, Look here, Forsyth. Don't live in that house. Sneer it is as much as you please, but there is something uncanny about it. My wife mentioned two cases, but there are five authenticated cases of people who have resided at number 19 and they have been either found dead or raving mad. No one knows what they have seen or heard, but the fact remains that strong, robust men of admirable physique have had their hair whitened and their reason destroyed with some unknown horror, and I beg of you not to rush into this mysterious danger. The doctor's warning had no effect on me. I was an out-and-out skeptic, and the idea of a haunted house implicitly believed in, in this 19th century of ours, filled me with delight. The next morning I went down to see Hunt. So, number 19 is haunted, I remarked. He turned ghastly. Well, yes, doctor, he replied, recovering himself with an effort. It has that reputation, and it has given us a lot of trouble. You know what it is. Give a dog a bad name. Is it true, I asked, that everyone who's lived there has either died or gone mad? He hesitated and fidgeted so that I was quite convinced that Price's story was correct, but rash fool that I was nothing would warn me. To tell the truth, doctor, said Hunt in a burst of confidence, the house has got a bad reputation. It was a splendid property till about 20 years ago. A doctor occupied it then. He was a foreigner, Dr. Caravini by name, and he had a very lovely wife who disappeared mysteriously. It was believed that she had eloped but anyhow, she disappeared just before Christmas. Her husband, always a grave and reserved man, said nothing, 
and offered no explanation, and the following December he was found dead. I was only a young fellow at the time. I, I disliked the man cordially for some unknown reason, but I shall never forget the awful expression of horror there was on his face when I saw him dead. What day in December did he die? I asked curiously. He was found dead on the morning of the 22nd of December, and since then, no one has passed a Christmas in the house, was the answer. For a moment, my heart beat faster, and I was stirred by feeling of dread. Then my common sense got the mastery of the idle superstition, and I said, Well, I intend on taking up my abode at number 19, and shall certainly give any ghosts who feel inclined to play hanky-panky tricks with me a warm welcome. I can assure you, doctor, cried the little house agent seriously, that if you show the people that these stories are mere nonsense, you will be doing a public service. After I left Hunt and went on my professional round, I found that I was looked upon as quite a hero, and a very imprudent one, too. And nearly every house I was asked if it were true that I had taken number 19, Great Hanover Street. And when I replied in the affirmative, I had a repetition of the solemn warning given to me by the prices. It amused me intensely how the house was haunted, whether by sounds or by specters, no one could tell me. All they did was to shake their heads and repeat the stories of the deaths that had taken place there. I ventured to remark that it might only be a coincidence people dying there on one date, but my remark was treated with derisive sniffs. The time passed quickly, the house was finished, and as no expense had been spared over it, it looked splendid. So bright and cheerful, the sun gaily streamed into all the rooms, birds sang in the garden. In short, as I surveyed the place, I thought what an idiot I should have been to let any superstitious nonsense stand in my way of renting such a suitable residence. Anne had arrived with all my goods and chattels. The only thing that annoyed me was that not a Slominster girl would accept service in the house. It was an easy place. I offered high wages, but nothing would induce a local girl to come. They all said the same thing. I'd come in the daytime, but I wouldn't sleep in number 19 for wealth untold. Fortunately for me, Anne was an eminently practical woman. I had told her of the reputation that the house had, and she laughed with me at the idea of some people believing in such rubbish. So when she found that Slominster servants would not come, she wrote two of her cousins who wanted situations and engaged them. And when they came, they were as much amused as she was at the idea of ghosts. Soon the house was put to rights, and it was the admiration of all my friends who called to see me. The plate glass windows were veiled with the daintiest of lace curtains. Flowers were scattered about. The street door, which stood hospitably open, showed a wide tessellated marble hall, littered with skin rugs and furnished in carved oak. Altogether it needed but only one thing, and that was a lady to preside over it and share it with me. My patients used the side door in the garden, and a red lamp was conspicuously placed over the gate with the word surgery on it. As time passed on, I was more and more charmed with the house. The most timid person could not have detected even a suspicious sound. The wind never howled or moaned in the chimneys. Doors never opened ghostily. In short, it was a quiet and well-regulated as a house could possibly be. My practice was growing apace. I had been fortunate enough to perform a couple of very intricate operations successfully, and it had got my name up well with the local medical men. 
by consulting hours at home were from 9 to 10 in the morning, 2 to 3 in the afternoon, and 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening. During the latter two hours, I was generally kept very busy. Sometimes I used to go out for a stroll after 8.30, but if I were tired, I stayed in my consulting room and had a quiet rest and read. I liked this room very much. It was large, had a southerly aspect, and the outlook in the garden was exceedingly pleasant. My lady friends declared that it was the snuggest as well as the best furnished room in the house. It had an oak suite upholstered in crimson leather, and I had as well several very large and delightfully cozy easy chairs scattered about. Heavy velvet curtains draped the floor and successfully shut out all drafts. One side of the wall was lined with bookshelves filled with the works of my favorite authors, as well as various scientific books needed in my profession. In the alcoves by the handsome black marble fireplace were carved oak cabinets, in which I blush to confess was a small but choice collection of wines, spirits, and cigars, comforts very dear to the heart of a man. The long bay window looked, as I have said before, into the garden, and altogether it was the most comfortable room. Things went on very happily and smoothly, and I constantly congratulated myself on my wisdom in not allowing superstition to have any influence over me. The winter of 1884 was an unusually severe one in Slominster, and I was kept exceedingly busy, so much so that I had to decline all invitations for social enjoyments and was seriously thinking of the advisability of taking a partner. It wanted but a few days to Christmas. A patient of mine was dangerously ill, and I went to see her at night about 10 o'clock. When I returned home, I let myself in with my latchkey, for it was one of the strict domestic rules that was rigidly adhered to, that the servants, including Anne, went to bed promptly at 10. I strolled into the consulting room, kicked off my boots, lit a cigar, and sat down to have a good long read and rest, for I rarely, if ever, retired till the small hours of morning. Nip, my fox terrier, a purebred dog, and my constant and most faithful companion lay at my feet. I suppose that I must have dozed off, for suddenly I was awakened by the book dropping from my hand, and at that moment came a howl of terror from the dog. Nip, old boy, I said, it's all right. But to my astonishment, I saw that he was standing upright, his hair positively bristling with fear, his ears thrown back, and every now and again he admitted the most blood-curdling howls. I looked round, but there was absolutely nothing to see to account for the dog's terror. I went to my desk, took a revolver from the drawer, and called Nip to follow me, but he could only stand shaking an abject object of fear. I picked him up in my arms and went into the passage. There his howls were fearful, and his eyes seemed darting out of their sockets. But still, there was nothing to see. When I got to the front portion of the house, he was quiet. I looked into all the rooms. Everything was in its normal state, so I calmly went to bed taking Nip up with me as usual. As I turned in, I looked at my watch, nearly half past one. I slept splendidly and came down to breakfast with a flourishing appetite. Just as I was finishing my bacon, Anne came in. Good morning, sir, she said. How are you? All right, thanks, I answered. How is your patient? she asked. I stared at Anne curiously, faithful servant that she was, 
She had never hitherto displayed any such interest in my work. Out of danger, I replied, and I hope we'll pull through all right now. It must have been a frightful case, she went on. Um, well, acute plurio pneumonia is always rather dangerous, I answered impatiently. Pneumonia, echoed the woman. I don't mean that. I mean the fearful accident that was brought in last night. I wish, Mr. Allen, you had rung me up. I might have been of some assistance. Accident? I repeated blankly. What accident? Last night, sir, she answered. There was no accident that I know of last night, I declared emphatically, and I was in the consulting room till past one. No accident? gasped Anne, and I saw that she was ghastly white and was trembling so that she had to hold on to the table for support. Sir, there must have been for both the surgery passage and consulting room were swimming with blood this morning. Nonsense, I cried. You have had a nightmare. I tell you, sir, it is fact, she said. When Jane went to clean the side door step this morning, she came back saying that there must have been a bad accident last night, for the place was covered in blood. She had turned so faint that I went myself, and from the door right along the passage into the consulting room, there it was, a horrible, horrible sight. Is it all cleaned up yet? I asked. Not quite, answered Anne. I left my breakfast, and as I strode along I nearly fell over Jane, who was on her knees, busily engaged in wiping up blood. Yes, I saw it myself. From the garden door, a horrible red rivulet ran, and here and there the wall was splashed as if someone had wantonly dabbed and thrown up the liquid. Sick and dizzy I went into the consulting room, there was a scarlet trail right along, and just by the fireplace, there was a large, hideous pool of blood soaking into the carpet, and leaving ghastly stains around. I'm not ashamed to confess that my brain reeled. The mysterious horror overcame me, and for a moment I thought that I was going to disgrace myself by fainting. Then, common sense asserted itself, and I recovered. Someone has been playing a scandalous practical joke here, I said sternly and you may be sure that I shall spare no expense to bring the perpetrator to justice. The servants looked but half convinced, and I even heard Anne mutter something about a haunted house. Although I affected to treat the matter lightly, yet I was sorely perplexed. I was quite convinced that it was a practical joke, but I was puzzled as to how the perpetrator or perpetrators could have got into the house, then where did they get their blood from, and how silent must they have been? Suddenly I remembered Nip's terror, and a cold thrill went through me. Altogether I was not surprised when my patients told me how very ill I looked. Mind, I had not the slightest belief in any supernatural agency. No thoughts of ghosts oppressed me, but I felt uncomfortable, as I could advance no reasonable theory to account for those ghastly marks. When I got home for luncheon, everything was neat and trim as usual, excepting that my servants looked ill and that a large skin rug had been placed over stains on the carpet in the consulting room. The marks from the wall had been washed away, but I felt strangely upset and irritable, and my annoyance was cumulated when I was told that Nip was dead. I had left him in my bedroom, and when the girls had gone in, they had found the poor beast dead. I was so thoroughly dispirited that when a friend of mine wired to me and asked me to dine with him that evening, I gladly accepted the invitation as means of ridding myself from my unpleasant thoughts. 
It was a lovely night, clear, cold, and frosty. The moon was lighting up the star-spangled blue sky. The air was deliciously bracing and exhilarating. And as I walked along, my worries seemed to disappear. I spent the most enjoyable evening, and I wish you to bear in mind that the conversation never once touched upon the supernatural. I drank only one glass of claret and two glasses of champagne. You will soon understand why I'm giving you these apparent unimportant details. About half past 11, I said goodbye, and as I slipped into my fur-lined coat, my friend said laughingly, What a big fellow you are, Forsyth. I glanced idly into the mirror and thought how well I looked. The gas shone on my diamond studs, and my curly hair was as dark brown as it could possibly be. The next time I saw my reflection in the glass, it was the color it is now, gray, bleached with horror. I walked home, whistling blithely, and just as I neared my house, I took out my bunch of keys. How bitterly cold it was. I had a feeling of pity for any unfortunate tramp that might be out. The wind had risen, and its icy blast penetrated even through my thick coat. When I got to the garden gate, judge of my astonishment when I saw crouching by the wall a figure of a woman. She rose when she heard my footsteps. I noticed she wore a long black coat, and a black hood covered her head. She advanced to meet me, and the grace of her movements struck me with admiration. For the love of God, she said in a low, melodious voice, will you help me? I put my hand in my pocket mechanically and drew out a half crown, which I handed to her. She looked at it idly. I don't want money, she said sadly. It's of no use to me. I want shelter, for I'm so cold. What do you require? I queried impatiently. I will give you another half crown, and for five shillings you can get a bed anywhere. She put out her hands and laid them on my arm. How small they were. What an exquisite shape for pretty rosy filbert nails, the slender tapering fingers on which blazed some costly diamond rings. At their touch, a thrill went through me. I'm so cold, she repeated with infinite pathos. Take me in with you and give me shelter. You must be mad to ask me such a thing, I said angrily. Go to a hotel. They will all be shut, she replied, and I'm so cold that I shall die. As she spoke, the moon came out from the bank of cloud and lit up the unknown's face with soft golden glory. Good heavens, what a face. Never could I have conceived anything earthly so lovely. Even now, waking or sleeping, I can see it before me. It was a purely oval face, with a delicate, creamy complexion. The mouth was small and scarlet, and the lips were tremulous and pouting like a child's. I felt a mad desire to kiss them into smiling content. The nose was perfect, but the eyes were the chief beauty. Large, liquid, violet eyes, shaded with long black lashes. Eyes that in their dreamy sensuousness were sufficient to make a man lose his soul, but for one glance of love from them. Rings of soft yellow curly hair escaped from the hood and clustered over the low white brow. I stood fascinated and gazed upon this dream of female loveliness. Don't be vexed with me, she erred piteously. But he has turned me out, turned me out tonight in this bitter cold, and I shall die if you will not give me shelter. She came near to me, her cloak touched me, I felt her warm, fragrant breath on my cheek, her hands tightened on my arm, and I, well, I am only a man. The blood was cursing through my veins, and I was losing my head under the glamour of those wonderful eyes. 
Come in, I said hastily. I will give you shelter for tonight. It would kill a wee frail thing like you to be exposed to the cold much longer. She laughed gratefully, a low rippling laugh like the tinkle of bells. You are good, she murmured. She followed me up the path. I opened the door, and as she came in, I was vaguely struck by an impression that she knew her way about the house. I took her into the consulting room. A bright fire was so crackling in the grate, and she went to it at once. I am so cold, she said again. I turned up the gas. My brain was on fire. This was an adventure with a vengeance. But what would become of my reputation if I were to be known that a strange and lovely young woman had passed the night under my bachelor roof? As I looked at her, all my selfish doubts vanished. Laugh, sneer if you like, but I, Alan Forsyth, was madly in love with a woman whose very name I did not know and whose acquaintance I had made not quarter of an hour back. She had loosened her cloak and stood in the bravery of her finery. She wore a gown of pale pink silk made in a style that I had never seen before. The bodice was low cut in front and showed a bosom perfectly mottled. Amongst the laces that fell in rows with every breath was a cluster of half-blown roses and their faint sweet perfume seemed to madden me. They were fastened by a diamond brooch. The beautiful arms were bare to the shoulder, but diamond bracelets were clasped about them. Round the slender throat was a tight band of broad black watered ribbon, in the center of which flashed a superb brooch of brilliance. Her golden hair was piled up high on the queenly little head, and the coils were fastened by diamond pins. How perfectly lovely she was. I rubbed my eyes to see if it were a dream, and if the vision would fade away. But no, she was still there, with the flames flickering on her marvelous beauty. Where had she come from? Who was she? I knew everyone in Slominster, by sight at least, and it was not likely that such a lovely creature could live in the town without being known. Besides, her dress and jewels showed that she was wealthy. Are you warmer yet? I asked, smiling. No, I'm so cold, she repeated wearily. Do you think I will ever be warm again? I curbed the inclination to take the slender form in my arms and warm it with fervor of my embraces. I put some brandy on the table and mixed it with a little water which I handed her. She took it with a grateful smile and sipped it, and I was relieved to see a tinge of pink come into the colorless cheeks. You must tell me who you are, I remarked gently, so that I can communicate with your friends. My friends, she repeated vacantly. I have no friends. He will not allow me to have any. He is so jealous, and tonight he turned me out, out into the snow and rain, although he knows how I dread the cold. It was not snowing or raining tonight, I said, but who is he that he treats you so cruelly? My husband, of course, she answered, but don't let us talk of him, for I hate him, and I'm so afraid of him. Whenever his eyes are upon me, I turn cold with dread, and when he attempts to kiss me, I all but faint, and then he says that I have a lover, and that he will murder me, and I am so unhappy. How can I convey any idea of the inexpressible mournfulness of her tone, of the piteous look in her eyes? Hazardous as her conduct was, I felt convinced of her goodness and purity, for who could doubt it after once looking into the exquisite, innocent face? Do not think of him, I said, but rest here and get warm, and in the morning we will talk matters over, and if you will allow me, I will assist you in all my power. How good you are to me, she murmured. Yes, let us be happy tonight. 
for who knows where I shall be in the morning. I drew one of the easy chairs close to the fire for her, and I bade her to be seated. She nestled in its depths with a sigh of content. I had flung off my coat, and kneeling on the rug, was endeavoring to rub some warmth into her small, numbed hands. She bent forward to me and patted my face. How handsome you are, she said, and how nice you look in evening dress. I kissed her fingers passionately, but their dead coldness went to my heart with a chill. I am so cold, she again repeated. She stretched out her tiny feet, and as I saw the fine black silk stockings and the thin kid shoes with their dainty bows and diamond buckle, I mentally execrated the man who had turned a woman out of doors clothed like this on such a night. I took off her shoes and rubbed her feet and made her swallow some more brandy. I added coals to the fire and wrapped my coat round her bare shoulders. Every trivial event of that night is impressed on my memory, and will only be effaced with death. Once I asked her if she would like me to wake up the servants and let them take her to bed, but she refused with a gentle smile. Let me stay here, she entreated. It is warm, and you know I am so cold. She walked up and down the room and drew aside the curtains and blind from the window and looked out into the garden. I always hated that garden, she said. Why, cried I, astonished, do you know it then? She smiled inscrutably and looked at me. She stretched out her arms and I forgot everything, forgot that she was married, that being under my roof she would have been sacred. I say, I forgot everything, but before you condemn me, think of my temptation. I was only young. The blood of youth leaped through my veins. She held out her hands to me and I rushed to her. I caught her in my arms, and I nearly crushed her slender form in the fervor of my embrace. I clasped her tightly to my throbbing, passionate heart, and rained hot kisses on her sweet face. I pressed my lips to hers, and tried to thaw their icy chill by the warmth of mine. I murmured endearing words to her, and swore that come what might, she would never leave me. In those few blissful moments, I felt the very ecstasy of love. My very soul went out of me. I was dizzy and blinded with emotion. I felt the supple form grow heavy in my arms, and she said faintly, Let me rest. I lifted her into the chair, and I was alarmed to see how ill she looked. Her eyes were half-closed, her whole figure dejected and helpless. Forgive me, darling, I said remorsefully. I forgot myself. She opened her eyes wearily. I'm so cold, she said, and so faint. Undo this band for the love of heaven, for I choke and die. She half rose with her hand to her throat and then sank nervously back into the easy chair. I bent over her and took that brooch from the band of the black watered ribbon about her throat and great God, how can I write it? How can I steady my hand so as to pen the words? As I undid the ribbon, so did that lovely head drop off. Oh, the horror of it. There were but one moment before was a beautiful breathing woman, was now a headless trunk, and at my feet was the head, hideous and bloody, the eyes open and glassy, and with an awful expression of terror in their depths, the teeth biting through the lips with a dumb agony. I looked round madly, everywhere was blood. The rug was soaked with it. It fell from the easy chair to the ground with a hollow splash. A trail of it went to the door. The curtains where her hands had touched were stained scarlet. I looked down again at the head. It was frozen with horror. It was there, but oh, terrible sight. 
no longer the head of a young and beautiful woman, but a hideous skull, one mass of vile corruption. This was too much for me. I gave one yell of terror that rung through the quiet house, and just then my eye caught sight of the calendar. It was the 21st of December. I tried to move, but the smell of blood sickened me. With a moan, I fell to the ground senseless. When I recovered my senses, it was June. For six months, I had been raving mad. On the morning of the 22nd of December, Anne found me lying on the floor of the consulting room, the apartment looking precisely the same as usual, and for weeks and months I was insane. But thanks to clever doctors, good nursing, and a strong constitution, I pulled round. Directly, I was strong enough, I went abroad to endeavor to efface the memory of that awful night. But although some of the terror has gone, I shall never forget it, and never shall I marry while the sight of that lovely face is still in my memory. I can give no explanation of the mysterious occurrence, excepting that some six months after I had returned to my professional duties from my illness, I attended an old lady who had known Dr. and Mrs. Caravini, who had once lived at number 19. I asked what she was like, and the answer was, A very beautiful girl, with an oval face and golden hair, and the most lovely violet eyes I ever saw. He was madly jealous of her, and I believe treated her very badly. I dare not ask anything more, but since then I often wondered whether the doctor had murdered his fair young wife and buried her remains in the garden. This, however, is one of the mysteries that will never be revealed till the great day of judgment shall come, when the hidden secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. Needless to say, I removed from the house without waiting for my three years' tenancy to expire, for I felt that another such night would kill me. As I drove past the other day, I saw that the to-let card was still up at 19 Great Hanover Street. Nineteen Great Hanover Street was written by Lily Harris. It appeared in the Sheffield Weekly Telegraph on Tuesday, December 24, 1889.